All right, now if you're able, please stand for the reading of Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason, reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of a, the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you that you are a God uh, who speaks to us. And so again, this morning, as, as we turn each week, as we turn to your word, as we seek to give our attention to the things that you have to say to us, uh, we pray that you would attend unto us by your spirit that the things that in particular we need to hear, the things that we need to be challenged by, the things we need to be encouraged by and uplifted by, that you would do these very things in us by the work of your Spirit for the glory and sake of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. So, I'd be interested to talk to you after the service if you think that you can rival this claim or this experience. Um, in the first nine years of our married life, Aaron and I lived at eight different addresses. Uh, so we lived in St. Charles, and then in Bartlett, and then our first Wheaton apartment, followed by our second Wheaton apartment, and then we moved to Philadelphia, uh, where we lived in 433 square feet of space. Uh, and then we obviously moved to our second Philly apartment, which had slightly more space than that, uh, only to move to Delaware to finally have a home in Delaware, and then we moved here, and I'll stop with the details of that. But uh, nine years, eight different addresses, it was 
always completely annoying, like when I had to um, apply for a security job and they do a very extensive background check and they ask you a question like, where have you lived in the last five to eight years or something? And you're trying to remember all of those addresses and especially all of those zip codes. What is a home? Obviously, it's more than just a physical address. What is the meaning of home? This isn't meant to be exhaustive, but when I think about home, I think about a place where I go to rest. Um, in my best moments, maybe, I think about it, this is a place where I and others can be known, where we can share in love and laughter and relationship, and we can invite other people into that. It's a place often that I think about, you know, after a hard day or a stressful day, where I just want to come home and have comfort and rest. Uh, it's a place, obviously, that we fill with stuff that expresses who we are, what we're like, what we love, what we're into. When you think about home, what comes to mind? What memories, feelings, longings? What does it mean to you, home? And where is your home? For many people, in many places in our world, home is an incredibly complicated and even painful subject. I mean, we can think about, for example, the homeless, people that we might see at, at intersections as we drive around uh, this area. We might think of others who, who have a home, but home is a, is a difficult and complicated place because of loss. The joy of home has been eclipsed by loss, and that could be something like divorce, where now home is this relationally complicated and painful place. It could be because of death, where home now always feels like someone is missing. We could also think of the many people in our world who, because of just various world events and geopolitical realities, they are one of the many refugee peoples in the world, and home is an incredibly difficult thing for them. This psalm opens with the acknowledgement that God is our true and lasting home. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses is credited with uh, authoring this psalm and you know, as you think about it, there's probably no one better than Moses to have written this psalm. Moses, who grew up in the courts of Pharaoh's house, though that was never his home. Moses, who had to flee from that house after he killed the Egyptian and became, you know, kind of a, a wandering desert nomad with flocks some 40 years. Moses, who then came back into Egypt and led the people out, saw God do amazing things, and yet only to end up on a 40-year wilderness camping trip. Moses, who experienced because of Israel's unbelief and his own unbelief, wandering in the wilderness and never really coming home. There's probably no one better than Moses to direct us to our true home. And that is what this psalm is seeking to do. It directs us to God, our true and lasting home. The goal of this psalm is that we would 
turn and seek our home in God. But I think that's difficult. I think it's incredibly difficult, probably for many of us, because you and I are unlikely to seek our home in God if we are satisfied with our current experience of home. We're unlikely to seek our true home in God if deep down we think home is something that I can make or I can achieve or I can buy. If we're confident in our ability to make our home here, we will not seek our home in God. And so if we're going to hear this psalm well this morning, if we're going to seek to listen to Psalm 90, we first have to listen to the bad news. The bad news that human life is under judgment. That's what this psalm shows us. Human life is under judgment. And only after receiving that bad news will we be able to appreciate the good news of Psalm 90 of our true and lasting home that we can have in God. So let's look at the psalm this morning. I want us to just think about these two themes. First, the bad news, and then the good news. So the bad news, human life is under judgment. Now, I've been an ordained minister for just over eight years, five years of that uh, in campus ministry, and then just over three years here at this church. And when I just, you know, when I talk to the average person about Christianity, the parts of Christianity that usually like resonate with people are things like love and forgiveness and peace and hope. And I've heard many people who don't, you know, believe in the Christian faith, don't maybe even believe in God, say things like, I can understand why that would be attractive. I can understand, you know, a loving God. That I could see how that would be helpful. But all this stuff in the Bible about sin and judgment, it's so negative. It's so oppressive. I mean, it's bad for people. It's bad for a society to believe these things. I mean, maybe you're here today and, and that's how you feel about these things that I'm just talking about. And others of you, I mean, certainly we know people who, who feel this way, friends, family, neighbors who, who think this way, who, who feel uneasy about these categories or, or just outright reject them. What I like to do is, is to start by showing why we need these categories, why everybody needs these categories, categories like evil, sin, and judgment. And let me say that... Um, you know, if this is something that in particular troubles you or you have questions about, there is a lot more. I, I feel like I had to cut like 2,000 words of this sermon so that it wouldn't be 45 minutes or something. So anyways, I have a lot of things that might be helpful for you. I would love to hear your thoughts, your questions. If you want to email me, my email is on the back of the bulletin or catch me after the service. Um, I'd love to share things that I've found helpful with this question. But first, let's look at Psalm 90, because I, I want you to see this all over the text. If you look at the text, the middle portion of our song, psalm strongly emphasizes these things, evil, sin, judgment. Verses 7 and 8, we read about God's anger, wrath, our iniquities, that is, our bentness away from what's ultimately good, namely God, we read about our, our secret sins. Verse 9, again, wrath. 
Verse 10, the troubles, sufferings of life. Verse 11, anger, wrath. Verse 15, evil. And what I want to say is we need these categories to make sense of the world. If this world is all that there is, there's no God, there's no supernatural, there's nothing like that, I will say you will have a really hard time making sense of evil. You will have to try and explain evil away as something that's just natural, something that really isn't an intruder into God's good creation, something that while we may not like it or we may, you know, you know, not approve of it, but it, it's just natural. It's all just a part of the evolutionary process. And this will undercut your ability to name it and oppose it. The philosopher James K.A. Smith put this so well when he wrote this, when we fall prey to the hubristic need for intellectual mastery, that is, you know, explaining everything, obviously evil is just fill in the blank. When we do that, we end up naturalizing evil and thus eviscerating it, undercutting the ability to protest against it. We can't protest what is natural. We can't lament what is meant to be. The price to pay for explaining evil is to give up naming and opposing it. As soon as we explain evil, it vanishes. You can't protest what's natural. I mean, could you imagine? Let's protest against gravity. Boo, gravity. <laughs> I'm against gravity. I don't know about you, but I'm against gravity. You can't be, I mean, I guess you could, but you, no one's going to take you seriously. You can't be against gravity. Gravity just is. How can you oppose? How can you be against evil if it's just natural? So just take something that's, that, I mean, evolutionarily speaking, is, is natural. The powerful and the strong take over and oppress the weak. And take one specific example that we could see of this in human life and in history. Domestic violence, human trafficking. There is not a single person that I know that I've ever met who, who would not agree, that is evil. That is wrong. But how do you account for it? How do you, how do you make sense of your revulsion toward it? You've undercut your ability to name it, to oppose it, the minute you explain it away and say, oh, well, we're all just here by evolutionary processes and that's how society evolved. You've explained away evil. You have no place to name it, no place to be against it, unless there's something actually wrong, something that's unnatural, something that's not the way it's supposed to be. You can't make sense of evil in the world. You see, we actually need to see evil for what it is, the intruder into God's good creation, to be able to name it, to oppose it, to have the categories to make sense of our world and our lives and our stories. And the Bible does this not by giving some quick and easy answer or explanation, but by giving a story, the story of our world. And that's what Psalm 90 is clearly reflecting on, the state of humanity from the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, the opening of the Bible, where in the beginning was God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And this God, out of the overflow and goodness of His love and His being, He, he made the world and He made human beings in particular to reflect Him and to enjoy Him and know Him and reflect that goodness in the world 
Psalm 3 of our psalm points back to the God who made humanity from the dust, breathing into Adam the breath of life. Humanity was made for this close, intimate relationship with God of trust and dependence. We were made to have our home in God. But in the third chapter of Genesis, there is an intruder in the garden. And we're not given every detail, and we're not given every explanation, but, but we're told that this intruder, who is not a rival God, but is a creature, who is identified with Satan, tempts humanity by telling them a different story, a story that says, you could be so much more. You could achieve so much greater if you would just declare your independence from God, if you would just determine what is right and wrong for you. And humanity listened to that story, listened to the voice of the evil ones and the evil one and chose to live out of that story and it turned out to be a horrible lie because to seek independence from God, to be free from God means to be free from our home. It means to be homeless. It means to be free from the source of life. It means death. And this world and human life from that point on would not be what it is supposed to be because evil and sin are turning away from God, are turning and falling short individually and collectively of what humanity is supposed to be. It would mark all of this world and all of our lives. And the Bible actually helps us make sense of what we see and experience in this world. And it helps us to name evil and lament what is not meant to be. Specifically in Psalm 90, to lament and grieve what turning to evil and listening to the voice of evil has done to humanity because the tragedy is, verse 3, we return back to dust. We die. And death is a constant reminder that our attempts to live by a made-up story, by the story of the evil one, by trying to make ourselves and trying to be independent of God and make our home and create our home and achieve our home, it won't work because we die and we lose and it all falls apart. And this is what we're told in verses 5 and 6. You sweep them away as with a flood. If you've ever had a basement flood or an apartment flood or a house flood, and especially if you were there, it is just the most helpless experience ever because the dollar signs are going up in your mind and, and the amount of damage, and there's nothing you can do about it. Death sweeps us away like that. It is coming, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Verse 5, we read, they are like a dream. How many dreams do you remember? I, I mean, I, I think we have dreams like every night. I, I think I've read that somewhere. I maybe remember one dream a month, but I remember it for about 30 seconds after I wake up and then it's gone. That's like, that's like what we're like. We're here and then we're gone. We read, like grass that's renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes, it's renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. We're here, we're bright, we're flourishing, we're full of life, and then the next day we're withering 
and we're dying. We read in verse 8 that our, our sins, the ways that we have just missed the target on what a human being is supposed to be and fallen short of what a human being is supposed to be, it's before God's face. It's clearly seen and it is fully known. And God, who is for what is good and beautiful and true, is against what is false and wrong. In our sinful condition, living apart from God and independent of God, God is against us. He's against that way of life because it is not good, it is not beautiful, and it is not true. And we read in verses 7, and seven for example, we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. These are things that we don't want to think about, and yet the psalm puts them right in front of our face, verse after verse, image after image, sin, death, judgment. I don't know uh, how many of you might be familiar with um, The Ringer. They write and discuss uh, sports and pop culture. They also have a podcast uh, that's pretty uh, popular. It was about a year ago, one of the guys on that podcast, one of their writers, a man named Jonathan Sarks, died of cancer. He was married. He had a two-year-old son. He was 34 years old. He was also a Christian. And before he died, he wrote a couple of pieces on that site about coming to terms with his own death. In one of those pieces, he writes about how prior to his diagnosis, he never really thought about death. He, you know, he writes like, at the time, I'm 33, I'm married, I have a baby, I'm not supposed to have to think about this. You know, maybe death is for other people, but not for me. I'm young, I don't do a dangerous job. I don't live in a dangerous place. I shouldn't have to think about this. But then as he, began think, as he had to come to terms with it, he began to realize that the people that he knew that were 70 or 80, they didn't seem ready to die either. It's like we all know that this is going to happen, but we block it out of our minds and reality. And he writes this, one of the best metaphors I've heard for modern life is that it's like a car that's headed toward a cliff's edge while billboards line the sides of the road blocking the driver's view. Those billboards are distractions that society has to offer. Netflix, sports, movies, music, everything you consume to avoid thinking about where you are ultimately headed. All those billboards cover your view until the end of the road when suddenly the cliff approaches. Then, as your car is flying in the air, that's when you start to think about death and the meaning of life. Ernest Becker, the cultural anthropologist, winner of the 1974 Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Denial of Death, puts it very similarly when he writes this, everything that man does in his symbolic world is an attempt to deny and overcome his grotesque fate. He literally drives himself into a blind obliviousness with social games, psychological tricks, personal preoccupations so far removed from the reality of his situation that they are forms of madness, agreed madness, shared madness, disguised and dignified madness, but madness all the same. 
to live a whole life with the fate of death haunting one's dreams and even the most sun-filled days, that would drive a person insane. Who wants to face up to the creatures we are? And yet, Psalm 90, the Bible has the audacity to say, you must face this. We must let this reality sink in. That's what verses 11 and 12 are saying. More literally translated, verse 11 is something like this. Who knows the power of your anger and your wrath? In other words, who thinks like this? Who thinks about these things? Verse 11, who knows? And then literally verse 12, cause us to know the number of our days right so that we may get a heart of wisdom. You must face up to this reality because it is only in recognizing this reality that one will flee to the God in whom we were made to know and whom alone is our true and lasting home. The bad news points us to the good news of God as our only true and lasting home. The God that we're meant to find home, verse 2, is the God who is vastly different from us. He is eternal. And His eternality is the answer to our frailty and our vulnerability. You are meant to find your home in Him. This is the God whose, whose mercy and unflinching faithful love is the answer to our sin and, the, and judgment. Look at verses 13 and 14 of the psalm. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. But I would, Im I would imagine someone has to be thinking about the question, if humanity is under judgment, if that's actually true, if we've sinned against God and we've turned from Him, and if our sin rightly brings His wrath and His anger, how could God ever be my home? How, how does that work? How do we move from, from this position of, of judgment, of wrath, to this position of basking in His love? And the answer of the Bible is Jesus. Because the Scriptures tell us that the God of the Bible is not only the, the eternal God who made all things and exists before all things, but He's also the one who came into this world. The eternal Son of God came into this world, sent by the Father, empowered by the Spirit, and made His home here. He made His home in this world, in a world of sin and sadness and evil and suffering and death. He made his home here with us so that you could have a home in God. One of my favorite songs that we sing is the song, My Song is Love Unknown. And in verse 6, we sing this about Jesus. In life, no house, no home my Lord on earth might have. In death, no friendly tomb, but what a stranger gave. What may I say? Heaven was his home, but mine the tomb in which he lay. Heaven was his home. 
Our home was the grave. His dwelling place was with the Father and the Spirit, the place of glory, the place of love and joy. But He came into what was rightfully our home, a tomb, and He made His home. He entered into death and sadness and judgment. He went to the tomb. He went to the grave. He went to death so that we could be brought home. Colossians 1 Chapter 1, verse 13, 14, speaks of this ultimate transfer of residency of what God has done in Jesus where where we read, He has delivered us and transferred us from the kingdom of darkness. That's where your address was. That was your home. You were of darkness, you were under judgment, you were stuck in sin, you were living apart from God, but God took you and He transferred you from that place, from the domain of darkness, and brought you into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Your address is in Jesus. This is one way of what we could say. This is what the New Testament means when it says we are in Christ. This is what it means to believe in Jesus and to be a believer This is what it means to be a Christian. This is who you are. Your true home is not your physical address. It's not anything that you can achieve or build here. All which is subject to decay and loss, your true home is in Jesus. In Him you have redemption. In Him you have forgiveness of sins. In Him you have life and joy and peace and hope. If Jesus does not return before we die, each one of us is going to face death. But for one who has trusted in Christ, the sting of death, the real awfulness of death is taken away because your life is hidden in Christ. Death cannot steal your life and it cannot steal your home. It can only usher you into life and into your true home. This is the good news of Jesus for all who trust in Him and who would receive Him. I want to bring us to a close this morning, and I want to ask three very just practical questions, all which flow from this psalm. First, do you think about death? Do you live life and build life in a way that recognizes death. As I've been thinking about it this week, I think we would live different. I think we would build different if we thought about death like Psalm 90 would have us think about it. Second question, are you seeking life in Christ? Some of you will know the name uh, Tim Keller someone who wrote a lot, a pastor who impacted many of us in this church. Tim died just over a month ago. I remember uh, the last couple years of his life after he had received the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, which is, you know, basically you you are going to die. Um, Numerous podcasts and interviews, how he spoke about the reality of death brought radical focus to his life radical focus in terms of what really matters, what doesn't matter so much. Prayer 
brought focus to prayer. It brought focus to fighting against sin. It, it brought focus to what matters. It, 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 it humbles and it directs us to build and invest in our true home and to live in a way in the world that reflects that. Third question, are you deeply prayerful about your work and labors in the world? That's how the psalm ends. Your job, your relationships, your kids, your serving, the things you do in the world, all of that can be approached as something that you're doing in your power, in your strength, in your wisdom. And if you do that, you probably struggle with anxiety and frustration because there's so much in the world that is just completely out of our control and there's suffering and there's toiling and there's unpredictability and so we're anxious and we're frustrated. You can live that way or you can approach life and do all of it in and through God, in His strength, in His help. As the psalm ends, you can live prayerfully. Oh Lord God, establish the work of my hands. Take my feeble efforts. Take the small things that I'm trying to do in my job, in my relationships, in my parenting, in my serving, in my loving my neighbor. Take these small things and make them count. Make them more by your power, by your grace, by your work in me and in this world. If you're anything like me, the number of ways that this psalm has perhaps challenged you or called you toward a different way of thinking about life is perhaps vast like it is for me. And so now, like we do every week, we have this opportunity to turn to a time of prayer, a time where we turn to God in honesty and in confession, con confessing the ways in, in which perhaps we have lived this last week in a lie, confessing our sins, asking for his help, knowing that he, he loves to meet us and help us, and, he, and there is plentiful grace for us in Jesus. And so let me invite us to take a few moments in silent prayer and confession, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a moment's time.